Hey, everybody. Welcome to the I Can't Help You podcast. We are very, very lucky to have with us today Dr. Brad Wilkinson as our guest. Uh, you might recognize the name. He may or may not be related to one of our uh co-producers, co-fan of the show, Miss Lily Wilkinson over here, who many of you know. Um, but we are absolutely thrilled to have you on the show, Brad. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Oh, great. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So you have been, you're, you're, you're retired now, right? Semi. Semi. You don't, the doctors never really completely retire. But, no, no, we but, don't. Yeah. But you've been a, you were a pediatrician. Nope. Right? No. Family you're doctor. Family doctor. Yep. For how long? Well, I've been in medicine uh, for over 40 years, uh, and I had various uh, careers in medicine, starting out as a physician assistant and then going on to medical school, and I was in the emergency room doing an ER, ER work for quite a while. The last 20 years of my career, I was in family practice. Okay. And what made you become a doctor? What was the, did, was it something from the time when you were young that you said, I'm going to be a doctor? Or did you, how, no, tell no. me how you chose to become a doctor. Actually, uh, I started off after college graduation. I was a high school English teacher for five years. Oh. And um, I slowly got uh, disenchanted with teaching because yes, I realized that's an, it's an important job, but maybe I needed something with a little more instant gratification than Mm. 20 years later, somebody's saying, oh, you were great. <laughs> so, I, uh, in our little town in Connecticut that uh, uh, my wife and I were, were living in, uh, I uh, became an EMT with a local volunteer ambulance corps. Uh -huh. I really started uh, enjoying that. And um, I thought more and more about medicine, which is something I had avoided, like the plague when I was an undergraduate, because all the... Uh, all the pre-meds that were friends of mine were drones and nerds. And, Too much uh, science, and right? Waste science. Oh, yeah. they were working hard. I was just reading novels. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, but it, it it started to have a real strong pull to me, um, and the whole sort of um, the gratification of 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 taking care of people mm -hmm. and um, really being able to touch their lives in a more sort of uh, immediate way than uh, teaching English. And be, the other thing was my English style was I was sort of like Johnny Carson. Yeah. You know, I, that was sort of my uh, my shtick in, in the classroom. So and like you come into the class and you're like, doo, 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 that's, right. doo, 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 doo. that's it. That's it. And, <laughs> the kids are too young to remember that. Too, yeah, right. Yeah. Or Ed McMahon. Ed McMahon, sure. <laughs> <laughs> right, old <Yeah>. Johnny. Uh, <laughs> uh, but... Um, and I realized I just I, I couldn't maintain that level of energy mm. uh, teaching for mm. for uh, uh, an entire career. So uh, I wanted something different, and um, so I got into medicine that way. Mm. It, it's 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 interesting that um, a lot of people have said to me over the years, "Oh my gosh." What a big switch from being an English teacher to a doctor. That's oh, where I was wow. going. That's where I was going. Yeah. and But, you know, uh, the same skills that made me whatever success I was as an English teacher uh, uh, carried me through in medicine. It's, mm. it's, it's all about listening to people, mm. actually listening to people, mm -hmm. as opposed to just nodding and going, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, it involved being empathetic. Mm -hmm. It involves communicating, communicating effectively. Mm -hmm. uh, and those principal skills 
um, carry through from teaching English to um, uh, be, being in medicine to being a, um, a a businessman. You know, those are those are the skills of life, mm-hmm. and um, so on the surface. English teaching to medicine seems like a big leap, but it's really not. It's I just a, had to, I had to memorize and sit in my butt a lot and memorize equations and formulas that I didn't know what they meant. But it's really interesting because you, you make that point. I think it's so true that regardless of vocation, communication skills and the ability to connect with other people in any field. Any field is going to help you. Any field. Any field. Even though, even in the technological age, we have people coding and doing stuff. You're gonna, you're gonna do better if you can communicate with your coworkers. Absolutely. If you come from a humanistic perspective. Absolutely. For sure. Absolutely. What is the best and most frustrating parts about practicing medicine? Oh well, the best is is, is obvious. You know, when you were able to uh, impact a life. Well, in when I was an ER doc. The best was when you made a save and yeah. somebody came in, you know, literally teetering on the abyss and you were able to pull them back. Mm. You know, that's... That's immediate gratification. That's a, that, boy, that is immediate <laughs> gratification. Yeah. And uh, so that was great. Um, but uh, it's all the little, again, it's the humanistic thing for me, is all the little interactions and, and the... Uh, being able to uh, communicate to people who are really scared about what's going on with their life and their mm-hmm. health and their family mm-hmm. uh, and be able to talk to them in a non-jargon way mm-hmm. and uh, interact with them to alleviate their their tension, their fear, their anguish. Mm-hmm. Um, and that much more than handing out blood pressure pills or 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 Lipitor mm. uh, is always bef- been the prime reward for me. Mm. And I, I think there's great research now showing that that human contact as well as the medicine actually is beneficia- beneficial to healing. That healing happens not both on a physical level, but on an emotional level oh. and knowing that you're cared for, right? Absolutely. There's study after study that shows people who, for example, people who go into surgery um if they go in terrified and just off the wall with fear and anxiety mm. uh or w- way on the other aspect of um uh, on the other end uh, people who go in with completely blithe and go oh that's nothing yeah. i'm going to have surgery both those extremes mm-hmm. uh do worse mm. post surgically mm. than the people who have mm. reasonable uh, anxiety, mm-hmm. but they have uh, also uh, a confidence in what they're, what uh, what's going to happen to them, and they understand what's going to happen to them. And, yeah, and what they recovery have, looks like. And, right. Yeah. Right. And... Unfortunately, there's uh, uh, there's a large amount of uh, physicians, uh, especially in the in the subspecialists, who are brilliant people, mm. but they uh, don't have a lot of uh, understanding of those concepts. Yeah, no, that's really true. That's been my experience as well in, in the medical system. And then what an amazing impact it makes when you have a caregiver who is genuine and present with you. 
the 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 treatment or whatever you're there for becomes almost secondary. I mean, obviously, it's it's hugely important if you're putting a stint in somebody's heart, for example. But but it really does. How has your? I know I know that you've traveled quite a bit. You've actually practiced medicine in other countries, right? Yeah, I uh, especially in the last uh, 15 years of my life, I uh, I really started getting. Uh, 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 in, intrigued and rewarded by doing volunteer medicine, both both locally uh, in the United States and overseas, and uh, that all started just as a diversion. Mm. Uh, all started right after Hurricane Katrina, mm-hmm. and um, I kept seeing everything that we all saw on TV about how terrible things were down in the Los in the uh, New Orleans and. Uh, uh, Mississippi Gulf Coast area, and I kept calling the Red Cross saying, gee, you know, can I help? Yeah. And the Red Cross would say, oh, no, no, everything's fine. And that just flew in the face of, of what we were all seeing on TV. Yeah. So I started making cold calls, and I got uh, a, a very nice uh, woman with a thick Southern accent down in the uh, state health department of the uh, state of Mississippi in Jackson, Mississippi. And I said, not for nothing. I'm I'm a family doctor up here in Connecticut with some emergency room background as well. Do you think you could use me down there? And she said, well, you know, there's a small relief organization that just called me looking for more doctors and nurses. And she connected me with uh, this small relief thing. And I flew down the next day and spent the week with this uh, small group that we were setting up clinics in these devastated towns on the Mississippi Gulf Coast wow. and, and walking around giving tetanus shots and hepatitis shots to the few people who were still there. And it was sort of an epiphanal moment. I said, wow, this is why I became a doctor. Uh, this feels this feels really good. Yeah. So pretty much after that, um, I started looking, even while I was in practice, I started looking for volunteer opportunities in mm-hmm. Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found um, um, uh, a clinic now that I've been volunteering at for 12 years. And uh, then I started going overseas uh, on medical trips. So yeah, it's, 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 a great, it's been a great, great uh, uh, end of career uh, boost for, for me because it's, it's so darn rewarding to take care of people I mean, I like entitled white middle class people. I do. I like them. And, and, no, nothing and, wrong with them. Nothing wrong with being entitled white upper middle class person. That's not the world. That's not the whole world. <laughs> and and um, and I took care of them. And 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 a lot of them. Uh, when when you take care of people in, in a family practice setting, they become your friends. Sure. Uh, far more than your patients, and mm. and and that also has its rewards. Sure. But, uh, taking care of people who have no other resources. And if it wasn't for you, they would have no medical care at all. That's that's especially rewarding. Hmm. In those travels and in experiences like that, plus your just plethora of experience as a family doc, I'm curious what your read is or how that's informed healthcare in the United States today. Like, What do you see? Because you know, obviously a huge part of political conversation Everything from, hey, we need single payer to we need this, we need that. People complaining, people seeing that the costs are too high, it's very difficult, pharma, you know, pharmacological costs, everything is expensive and it seems to be relatively out of whack. 
but I'm not on the front lines practicing either, and I haven't seen other places. And so I'm just curious, from your perspective, where do you see us today, and, and how does it compare to other places you've been in the world with the way that we deliver healthcare in the United States? Well, do you have about five or six hours? <laughs> <laughs> it's a broad it, it, question. I it, know. It's, it's a broad question. From my uh, perspective, and I'll just give you a very narrow focus, um, the corporatization of medicine in the United States um, in on the level of primary care, where family doctors, primary care internists, pediatricians, um, to some extent OBGYNs, and where we practice, um, it has all been sort of taken over by the corporate world, and there are, and all our bosses now are big organizations, giant hospitals, hospital systems. We're beholden to them. We're beholden to insurance companies that dictate to us how to practice medicine, mm. uh, what tests we can order, what medications we can use. Mm. We're beholden to uh, pharmacologic companies. We're beholden to uh, state regulatory agencies. And you will find a great deal of frustration on the primary care level mm. uh, of uh, uh, practitioners saying that 30 to 40 percent of their of their professional day is made up of uncompensated paperwork, mm. and it becomes very fr frustrating. The burnout is very high, yeah. and uh, that's a real issue. Mm. That being said. My experience uh, limited to only uh, three countries. I've I've done uh, work in Mexico, Vietnam, and and primarily the Dominican Republic. Um, it's a what we have now is is needs a whole lot of fixing, but it's a hell of a lot better than uh, the developing world. Mm. I mean, it seems like the the technology and the resources and how well pe trained people are, the ability to treat people in spite of all of those other roadblocks, the insurance and all these other that we do a really great job. That America is still, you know, it's it's we have a we have excellent health care um for people who can access it, right? And right. And, and and the ability, you know, is there for that. But it seems like when I speak with you and other people that the real issue isn't around the delivery of care, it's how that gets impacted by insurance companies and big companies. So so the priority with those companies, correct me if I'm wrong, is they're beholden to shareholders, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, they, they need to produce return, which, you know, most businesses do. We understand right. that. But then so do so does the insurance company, and the insurance company and the providing company are fighting it out. And it seems like at the bottom of that, who loses are the caregivers who can't deliver care in the way that they want to and the speed that they want to and order tests and get people help. And That's a daily, daily, daily issue uh, in primary care. Yeah. Uh, that um, your corporate uh, uh, bosses will uh, tell you, well, you seeing 22 patients a day is fine, but uh, we really want you to see 30 patients a day. Mm -hmm. And... That with all the uh, frustrations of dealing with the electronic medical record, which mm. is very time consuming, um, you're just in a position where you can no longer connect with individual patients that, which is why most people got into uh, primary care to begin with, right. is th that opportunity uh, becomes uh, uh, subservient to the demands and pressures of um, 
corporate medicine and big pharma and insurance companies. Mm. And so at the end of a long day when maybe you've seen your 30 patients, you feel unhappy that you haven't been able to uh, connect with the patients like you would wanted to do. Sure. And the patients themselves leave the office feeling, well, he didn't really give me any time. Uh, You know, I had other things I wanted to talk to him about. uh, And, um, you know, this is, you know, I'm very, very dissatisfied. Yeah. And so it it leaves a a sour taste in everybody's mouth um, uh, on the primary care level. Yeah. And we, I had a great fortune. Everything is fine with Gracie, but Gracie and I had to go get some work done for her. Um, and we were fortunate enough to go to the Mayo Clinic. We were actually in network with them with our insurance. So we went to the Mayo Clinic and what was really interesting there was that each doctor that we saw, we saw three different doctors spent 45 minutes with us and taking notes and talking to Grace and showing Grace has great interest in medicine too. So this will be her favorite podcast, by the way. But <laughs> but 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 basically spending all this time and the the awareness that came from it was that the information was important, very important. But the contact that she had with these doctors in and of itself was an incredibly healing experience through understanding and connection. Absolutely. So what's, you know, I know this is a complicated issue and people are working on their fighting politically and everything, but in your mind, what, what does the United States need to do to make this work? To make it work, everyone's going to have to compromise on something. But like, what do you have any ideas of, I don't want to say fixes, but what, where, what could we do to make this better for doctors and patients? I, I can only uh, think that if we're going to have a patient-centered healthcare system hmm. as opposed to a corporation-centered healthcare system, it has to get to a single payer yeah. model. Yeah. Uh, you know, I understand uh, uh, how, how the difficulties with that, and I understand that, you know, the system in Canada and the system in, in, in England yeah. has some serious flaws, yeah. and, um, but it seems to me that's, that's the only, only way we can end up being if, we, if we're truly interested in, in a, a patient-centered And we system. really are one of the very few countries who don't, right? right. So, you know, it's kind of like we're this young country in America. This has been going on in other places. Maybe go to school and see how that works. But we have this thing called capitalism that pushes pretty hard and is part of our fabric, which I love. Like, I think the the great part about capitalism is it drives creativity. And a lot of the equipment that we use probably wouldn't have been even created if we didn't have that freedom. And so there's all sorts of great things that come with it. But when that ends up being at the cost of our health in general and it comes, you know, it, it hits a boiling point. I think we're I think we're there. And I, I tend to really agree with you. And I think to the people who say, well, I don't want some single player, elitists will still buy their own doc- – like they'll still just buy their own health care. Right. There will be more concierge medicine for people in the upper 1% or whatever. Right. But then a, a consistent, hopeful level of, of, of health care uh, for the rest of the population, which, which, you know, I say to people, we do treat them anyway, right? Like right. so when people don't have insurance, can't pay. They're, they're unaccessible. They, they have to be treated. They get treated. The issue is, is that the rest of us in the companies are going to pay for the debt. And it's the consumer who ends up paying for that. You and know? Truth be told, we already have a single-payer system called Medi- Medicare, right? which uh, I joined myself three, <laughs> three years ago. And it's great. <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah, it's not bad. <laughs> you know, I, I go in and uh, I, I do have a, a really good supplement plan which you have to do in, with Medicare. Yeah. Um, but that's not very expensive. And you go in and you, 
show the receptionist your two cards, and uh, I haven't seen a medical bill in in three years. Wow. And, yeah, and it's it's pretty remarkable. It is remarkable. Do you? What is your most gratifying experience as a doctor? That's tough. I'm sure there's been plenty, but what, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I say, God, what's the? When did you just feel like the best part of being a doctor was for you, or, or best experience you've had? Anything come to mind? I, th- I, th- I'll, I'll harken back to um, my past five, ten years uh, taking care of. Uh, people who are outside the healthcare system, mm-hmm. outside the socioeconomic system. And and and, and these people uh, who have these daily struggles in the United States, you know, when they're almost they're all immigrants and, and they don't know the culture and they're away from their families, they're away from their country, they're away from their home. Uh, and to just be able to uh, help them along a little bit and interact with them and show them show them that that there are people out there who care for them mm. uh, and are interested in them and the sort of the relief you see on their faces and the and the and the gratitude mm. that that uh, they demonstrate is it's well you know I've, I've just drunk that kool-aid it's uh, it's very it's, it's a, why you got into it right <laughs> yeah, like it's, it's, it's why it's, you it's did po- this. it's powerfully addictive that's and, amazing and and it's 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 great. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, and that's a, you know it's another great use of resources when you think about it. As uh, doctors do leave practices and are in retirement, to be able to use that time both for the doctor, I imagine, to be able to feel connected and stay relevant and vital in the work that one is doing, um, and also you know really obviously for patients and people who can't afford those services, it's huge. Thank you for doing it. Well, it, it you know it's mostly it's all about me. Sure. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, you know, I I feel I get much more out of it personally in terms of uh, reward than I give. But it's it it is great. And uh, if there could be some more organized mobilization of of retired caregivers uh, this clinic that i work at in 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 hartford it it that's the model that they try to use mm-hmm. is is uh, volunteer nurses and volunteer doctors and it's sort of working yeah. but uh if 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 we there's a, there's a lot of talent out there yeah. uh, and there's a lot of i think uh, a lot of uh eagerness to, to try to, to help. And if we could somehow get that organized, that'd be great. Mm-hmm. In your experience, how how important is it for healthcare providers, even therapists, people who work in human services in general, how important is it that they take care of themselves? And and how can they help themselves to to be in it for the long haul, right? The marathon of, of doing this kind of work. You, you've had a long, lengthy career, you know, help hundreds, thousands of families, people, you've had to have something to sustain you besides just the work, especially in the later years, I imagine, as the corporation started coming in and the burnout started to rise. I've always had, uh, uh, I've never, I've always rejected the model of the doctor who's, uh, whose all-consuming passion is his practice. Mm-hmm. And you see these articles in, I'm sure you see it in the Denver newspaper as we did in the uh, Hartford ha- Hartford newspapers. Every once in a while they'll show, oh, Tom Jones, he's still seeing patients and he's 94 years old and he's dedicated his entire life to mm-hmm. medicine. Mm-hmm. Well, 
that's great for Tom, but uh, I don't think that's a that's a, a working model for most people. Mm-hmm. And um, I've taken uh, huge uh, steps all through my career, and I, I'm hoping my family will 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 back that up. That that. Um, Yes, my work is very important, but uh, it was still secondary to my family mm-hmm. and uh, to uh, my marriage mm-hmm. and to my children mm-hmm. and my life with them. Uh, there's no question that that's what helped sustain me through mm-hmm. uh, my career. What about sailing? <laughs> well, I was going to say his, his boat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I imagine, but seriously, I would imagine that sailing uh, brought a, a, a huge amount of something to you that was not opposite of medicine, but 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 definitely a way to fill your own cup. Yeah, no, sailing sailing is great, and um, uh, I love it. And uh, being out on the water with uh, good friends and family on a lovely day, with a nice stiff breeze and the water rushing by, mm. it's. It's intoxicating. It's tough to uh, beat. Tough to beat. I might be experiencing some of that this summer. You will. <laughs> you will. <laughs> Hope so. That'll be great. Um, what about parenting? You know, you mentioned family and 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 uh, that family has always been number one. And I want to vouch for you and say that in the time that I've known you, which has been now how many? Eight years? Nine. Nine years. I've known the Wilkinsons for nine years. That's been true in my experience. I've worked with a lot of families myself. And what I have seen with your family is whether it's trips to a ranch in Wyoming or, or, you know, you, you all are a tight knit group. And as a father myself, that's inspiring to me. And I just wanted to say that to all of you, that I really respect very much, um, how you've parented and, and, and your care and your love. And, um, sorry, I'm, I'm getting a little sappy there. I don't want to put you on no, spot, no, no, but, Thank you very much. I just wish my, my, our, our children were a little bit more grateful yeah. Well, I, so what I hear you saying is that never changes. Because from my experience, I'm I'm thinking, okay, you know, there'll be this moment when they're 30 and they're going to be like, Dad, all the crap you put up with, I just yeah. want to say I'm sorry for ridiculing you and wearing got- your socks and stealing your clothes and driving your car and all that stuff. But haven't gotten that. It's not. I did. I went into the, the terminal to get them yesterday. So instead of just waiting at passenger pickup, like I went in. Which, which is basically gratitude in action. Right, exactly. Right. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. Don't say I've never done anything for you, Bob. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> all right. You did pick us up in the terminal once. You're right. But actually, the, 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 I, I take it all back. The question the question actually within there, though, is like, how, how, how was being a parent, being a family man, how did that affect your practice? How did that affect your practice of medicine? Oh, it was it, – it, Cross back and forth every day, all the time. Hmm. Hmm. Um, when a patient comes in talking uh, with their child, hmm. um, most of the time my advice came not from what I know about pediatrics, hmm. but what from no, I know of being a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, when people come in and they're having family issues, divorce issues, hmm. estrangement issues, hmm. All the things that uh, come across your plate as a family doctor mm. of uh, family dynamics and and uh, family dysfunction, um, I'm I'm sure that almost all the time I was approaching it from my perspective as a family person, not as a physician. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if it's it's the crossover is is 
seamless. I feel the same in my own work because I, I think what I've said to people often is I was an expert parent before I was one. And then once I became a parent, it's all on the job training. And I can't really tell people what to do, but I can come from a place of what I might do or re- relating to the feeling about something mm-hmm. and how important that is. Mm-hmm. Before I was a parent, there's no way I could understand that. Like it was difficult. It'd be like trying to, I don't know. It was just difficult to understand in the way that I can as a parent. And I see it as a, in a different, I could tell you like pretty much when I'm meeting with a doctor or somebody else, I know if they have kids just by the way that they're acting, right? right? Especially the way they're treating my children, right? I can see right. it in, in different pieces. Not that it should be a prerequisite or anything like that, but it's just, it informs us in a way that's very different. And I think patients feel it. I uh, saw my cardiologist uh, a, a year or so ago. I went in to see him. I don't see my cardiologist that often, thankfully. But, uh, and he was a nice guy that I've known for a long time through my work at the, with this one hospital and through the emergency room. And I chose him because he seemed like a, unlike a lot of specialists, he seemed like a real nice human guy. <laughs> and uh, he came in, he goes, hi, Brad, how are you? And I said, fine, Dave, how are you? And he rolls his eyes and he said, well, I've had a rough night. So, oh, really? What happened? My college daughter, college-age daughter is in, I think, London mm. uh, and on a student exchange thing. And she's got anxiety issues. And she uh, was on the phone with us and with my wife and I all night long. Mm. And what can you do if your daughter is 3,000 miles away across the ocean mm. and she's weeping on the telephone? Mm-hmm. And that's that's the kind of experience that makes him a much better doctor. Absolutely. And by the way, thanks for sharing all that with me, Doc. Now can you look at my heart? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so it's no secret to anyone who's listening on this show, and Lily's been really open about it. You know, I met you all through Aim House, and seven, seven, eight years ago, I guess, is when we would have met. Lily wanted me to ask this question, so I'm going to be clear about that. What was it like, What in your experience, what was it like to be a parent and have one of your children at Aim House? What was that experience like for you? Well, from the parent-Lily dynamic, um, L- Lily was uh, really struggling. And she, this, was, this whole recovery thing was still really fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, it was because for... M- a couple of years beforehand, uh, my wife and I did a wonderful job of denying, ignoring, and enabling Lily until all of a sudden at Lily's behest, hmm. she insisted that that she slapped us upside the head and said, I need help. And so that was only about four months before we came to Aim House. So we were still very fresh, and Lily was struggling, and it was it was very, very tough, and the biggest challenge of our uh, of our family, of our entire family, and the biggest family uh, challenge to our being parents, and I say probably the biggest challenge to our marriage, mm-hmm. and um, that is in in uh, on the other hand, the what we had in Aim House, we instantly felt so grateful that she was in AIM House and that she was with really good people, really perceptive people, really insightful people, and people who clearly uh, were after Lily's best interests. Mm -hmm. So we were still in the the frightened parent stage, um, but we also 
felt that we had put Lily in the in the best possible place, and um, that we never once—I don't think we ever once doubted uh, uh, that Lily wasn't in the right place. Mm. And so that was a great comfort to us, especially since we were, you know, seventeen hundred miles away. Right. Of course. Of course. And it's so great to be able to share that and 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 share those feelings because. It really is helpful, I think, to people who are kind of on the other side or, or contemplating that or just in that phase where it's so scary and things are going on. And I think what's also interesting is just that I think in every family system, there's there are events that happen a long time where it's kind of this first, right? Like it's this first thing of big disruption or situation. Or inter- and, but as we go through this process, it seems like actually the whole family heals in a different way, you know, and that, that in my experience, the lily... The Lily, or when I was growing up, the me, right, is the one that's sort of the canary in the coal mine that all of a sudden, you know, gets rallied around. But then the whole system starts to look at themselves. And I, my experience with with you all has been that that's maintained throughout that that the the level of relationship. I mean, all relationships come and go, and there's good not come and go, but have ebbs and flows to them, right? And they become more independent and, you know, Lily's sitting here at what, 27 today, 20, yeah. you know, and we met, I thought about this this morning that you were Grace's age, who's my daughter, you know, yeah. like when I met you, yeah. Grace is 18, 18. And, yeah. and, and we always joke around because of, we both have, dad, we're, sim- Lily tells me we're similar dads, Yeah. which I take as a huge compliment. <laughs> I take as a huge compliment. Why? I'll tell you why. Because she still loves you. And wants to be around you and your feedback and everything means a lot to her. And you're in this great relationship. And I say this, which I'm sure on some levels totally politically incorrect, but I truly believe the world would be a different place if every man had a daughter. Yeah. I, I really, really do. Because mm-hmm. it fundamentally, and my boys too, I love my boys right. and they're great. Right. But my daughter changed me as a man in mm-hmm. terms of my perception of women, mm-hmm. in terms of how I communicate with my wife mm-hmm. in terms of my generalized understanding of other issues, mm-hmm. right? I started to see things through a different lens and that that love, you know, um, is so deep and so pervasive. And I see it with you too. I'm not trying to make you feel uncomfortable, but I see it and I feel it all the time. And she speaks of you with such reverence and regard and such um, love mm-hmm. um, that... That's been a role model for me, and I just wanted to say that to you. I wanted to say that you've really been a huge impact on me, whether you know it or not, um, including sometimes me saying to Lil, hey, Lil, what's the best way for me to handle this one? What do you think if I say this to Grace? Because you bounce off of each other and use that collective wisdom. And mm-hmm. so I just wanted to say that. I want to say I think you know, the Wilkinsons are just a beautiful family. I, I feel really fortunate. I, I feel grateful, too. I feel grateful. I want to say this out loud. Your, your support of collegiate recovery, your support of the things that we've done, and um, willingness to trust us and, and early on share your daughter and then just keep this relationship going. It's just been, it shows the magic that can happen in my mind when families, programs, mentors, everybody are aligned because it doesn't always work out that way as we know. Yeah. A lot of times people split off and it, it becomes too painful to deal with the changes and the things going on. So we got to blame the program and 
you know, or we got to blame the consultant or blame the parent or but people aren't usually united. And so when there is that kind of unification, when there is that sort of all fighting for the best effort of the individual, really, really cool things like Lily can happen. And yeah. so it's 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 been a great it's been a great experience. And and um, as we sort of wrap up, I just wanted to s- express really clearly that I really, really appreciate you. I look up to you a lot and um, and really respect your career. And most of all, respect the father that you've been and the husband that you've been. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. Course, um, I, I, I would also would like to say that uh, Aim House has been great, uh, and uh, Lily had has, has had really really good fortune in having a lot of people interact with her who really care about her and love or love her. But it cannot uh, be left unsaid that the path that Lily took from where she was nine years ago and where she is today is almost ninety percent due to the hard work that she put in. A hundred percent. And um, she was, she was uh, from that time, uh, that Saturday night, nine years ago, when she hit, hit us upside the head and said, I need help. From that moment on, she has been ferocious in her own recovery. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, and it's been inspiring. It really has. And it's inspired a lot of other people, you know. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Really, really appreciate having you. And, and our expectations were low as you encouraged, encouraged us to be. They far exceeded my low expectations. Um, thank you for taking the time to come on. Before I close out, is there anything anybody else would like to say? Okay, great. Um, thank you all very much for listening. Thanks for taking the time to come on here. This has been the I Can't Help You podcast. And uh, we can be found at uh, – Lauren, why don't you do your thing? Where can we find us, Lauren? Cool. You can find us on Facebook. We have a nice little Facebook group called I Can't Help You Podcast. We are on Instagram and Twitter at I Can't Help You Pod. Um, you can find us on iTunes. If you'd like to have if you'd like to talk to us or whatever, you can email us at help at I Can't Help You dot org. <laughs> like us, that. follow us, rate us, review us. We like you. Like us back. Yeah. Thank you so much for tuning in, everybody. We appreciate it. Once again, thank you, Brad, for coming on. And uh, we will talk with you next time. Thank you so much.